All right. That's just par for my morning this morning. I, uh, I've been on the struggle bus all day, but um, that's nothing new for me. Um, wanted to draw your attention to the bulletin for a, uh, a couple minutes, um, first of all. Mention a few things. Um, one thing is this. We have a lot of new folks in our church, and we rejoice in that. We're excited about that. Um, but one of the things we've begun to notice is that a lot of our information that we have on people and their families is out of date. And we want to be able to help everybody get connected and, um, and, under, and, and be able to identify, like, I met this person and I don't know who they are, but um, how, how do I help me remember their name, right? We're going to put together a photo directory. But in order to do that, we need to make sure we get up-to-date information. So that out on the table out here to the, uh, to the right of the door, there are some, some, some cards that look about this size. There's one of them right there. Jeff Dunbar is helpfully holding that up for me. Uh, and if you would fill that out so we could get up-to-date information from every family in our church, uh, and then also, if you are in the digital world and you can send us a current family photo, that would be great. Okay? If you're not digital, that's okay. We have the ability to scan that in, but you'll need to bring us a photo in that case. Okay? Um, but we'd like to get that published here um, in the next month so that we can do a better job of connecting with each other. So if you would, um, encourage you to do that. Also, um, and coming up, uh, if you're a man and you want to go to uh, a fun uh, weekend of a spiritual retreat with some encouraging speakers as well as some, some fun activities uh, up in East Troy, Wisconsin, it'll be a fabulous fun time. Um, you can register online to go to camp and then contact Carl B.C. Carl, if you'd shoot your hand up. This is Carl B.C. Carl Baker Christofel. That's a mouthful, so we say B.C. around here. Um, contact Carl, um, and uh, he'll help you arrange a carpool and that kind of thing. Uh, ladies Sunday School class, Hope for the Hurting, by Dr. Tony Evans, is going to run for 12 weeks uh, starting September 10th. That's next Sunday. Um, there is a women's Sunday School class that originally we told you would start some, uh, Tuesday, but it's actually going to start a week from Tuesday on the 10th. That's been delayed. Um, the Awana kickoff is coming up September 27th. Um, community food drive is still uh, ongoing. Uh, we, you know, the August part of that is over, but um, but they still need uh, your donations and help. Uh, you can also join a small group uh, beginning next week. You'll have, if you're in a sermon-based group, you'll start to have notes and so forth to discuss uh, that go along with the sermon. And anybody who wants to be an Awana volunteer, see Pastor Josh, uh, who's not here today. So I get to pretend to be Pastor Josh today for just a minute and talk about uh, our table talk for today. Uh, Rachel's trying to get my attention. Rachel, what you got? Okay. Okay. So 7 to 8.30. Uh, beginning on the 19th, new ladies' evening Bible study. So if you're a, a working woman or you just like to get out at night, um, either one, and you want to uh, 
Uh, some of you are thinking, I cannot wait to leave my husband with our children and get out by myself for an hour and a half and study the Bible with some other women. Uh, and if that's you, uh, see Rachel. She can get you information on that. Okay? Um, I want to talk this morning about the church. We're continuing to kind of walk through this, uh, this series of things. That, that are designed for you to be able to talk with your kids or talk with a, a group of friends or talk within your family about what do we believe about various things. And one of the things we believe about the church is that, is that God gave to the church a structure. Um, and uh, so the question is, who leads the church? Okay, Maybe I'll ask some of you, some of you, some of you kids who are here. Those of you young people who are here, who leads the church? Who? Jesus. That is exactly the right answer. Give that man $100. All right. <laughs> um, all right. Jesus leads the church. He is the head of the church. He is the head of the body, as Colossians says, right? Uh, if you said the senior pastor, you flunked. All right. Um, give yourself a uh, invisible gold star. But um, in any case, um, Jesus is the head of the church. He places elders to lead in teaching and deacons to serve and uh, to lead in serving his local churches in submission to him. Jesus is the head of the church. It is not your pastor, it is not the elders, it is not the deacons. It is Jesus who leads the church. And then, and then he directs each church to appoint elders and deacons uh, to lead in teaching and lead in serving under Him. That's very important. So there's a lot of Scripture that goes along with that. I uh, encourage you if, you, if you are a parent or even if you just want to read this for your own benefit and blessing and uh, talk about it with other people, uh, we've got these out in the hallway. You can pick one up. If you have questions about this or anything that we present to you, um, feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, it's joe at chilibible.org and I will be happy to spend as much time either via email or sitting down over a cup of coffee or any of that uh, to talk through that with you. Now, uh, guys in the back, do you have that slide on our sermon series? The, the big one. There we go. That's the one we're looking for. Today... Uh, we are continuing through our series here this this uh, uh, this summer and fall on the greatest story ever told. Okay, um, the greatest story ever told is the story of how Jesus Christ came into the world to save humanity, and the whole Bible is about presenting and telling that story. Uh, the Old Testament is about anticipating Jesus coming. Uh, the New Testament shows us Jesus coming and then both looks back on the fact that He came and, and also anticipates the day when He will come again. So all of the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. And it has a lot of other stories and a lot of other parts to it, but ultimately the whole Bible points to Jesus. And we want to show you that over the course of looking at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And then in addition to that, uh, show you how the Bible fits together as a cohesive unit. And then in addition to that, help us all to know and love and follow Jesus better 
for having known and understood His Word a little better in the course of this study. So, today, where we are, um, is one of the... We're going to cover our biggest chunk of the Old Testament yet. We're going to cover two whole books of Scripture. We're going to cover Exodus and Numbers. Okay? Uh, Now... Uh, These two books tell us the story of how God delivered His people from slavery in Egypt and led them through the wilderness to the edge of the Promised Land. Now, between those two books, they're long books, there are 76 chapters in those two books. So we're obviously, unless you're committed to be here for the day, not going to read all 76 chapters. But I do want to uh, to get to a chunk of the Scripture that we can read and that we are going to look at together by way of introduction. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to flip over with me uh, to the second book in your Old Testament. Okay, So right after Genesis comes the second book called Exodus. Exodus, by the way, is a word that means leaving town, getting out. Okay? It's a story of how the people of Israel got out of Egypt, leaving. Uh, And so this is that story. So if you have your Bible, if you'd open it with me, Genesis chapter 1, I mean Exodus chapter 1, we're going to read the first 14 verses. And if you're able, if you'd stand with me as I read. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied uh, and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Let's pray. God, our Father... We thank You that this story of Exodus is not merely about Your mighty power in the past, but it is also about the fact that You are still the God who sets free. And Father, we pray that if anyone here has not yet been set free from the slavery they've lived in their whole life, that today as they hear this story, they would understand how that happens. And that today would be Freedom Day for them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this passage that we just read helps us understand how we get from this beautiful ending at the end of the book of Genesis where everybody is at peace 
And uh, the people of Israel are all now living in Egypt in the land of Goshen and the best part of the land, the delta down on the uh, Mediterranean Sea. I mean, think about this, right? You're living on the beach. You've got grassland all around you. You've got your sheep grazing. You've got your farm going. And you're just having a good time. In fact, they're having such a good time that they're having lots and lots of babies. And... And they've got, uh, they've got people multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and to a point that the Egyptians started to get nervous. These people are going to outnumber us. Uh, they are then enslaved. And what's happened historically is that there's a new dynasty that's taken over. Uh, whereas formerly it was a Semitic ruler that had, that had taken over the land of Egypt and were essentially relatives of the people of Israel. Now the native Egyptian uh, dynasty has come back into power, thrown out this, this foreign government that was friends with Joseph and his family. And they, they look around and they go, these people are a threat. And so for 350 years, they remain slaves in Egypt. 350 years later, God intervenes. But you can't tell immediately that God has intervened. Especially because God's intervention comes at a time when Pharaoh has just given the order to murder every male baby born to the people of Israel. But nevertheless, God was intervening. One way that He intervened was He led two of the Hebrew midwives who delivered the babies to refuse to carry out Pharaoh's order. And so many of the boy babies survived. In addition, he led one little Hebrew slave woman to protect her son and to keep him hidden for three months. And when she couldn't hide him anymore, what she did was she made a little waterproof boat out of reeds and tar and took this little waterproof boat, and she knew where Pharaoh's daughter went to take a bath. A place where the water was still, where there weren't any crocs or hippos. And uh, she went down there, and she set this little boat off in the reeds, right there where she knew Pharaoh's daughter would be coming soon to take a bath. And she took that baby's big sister, and she said, watch right here and see what happens. And in a little bit, who should come down to the water but Pharaoh's own daughter? And she hears the sound of that baby cry. She sends one of her servant girls to go get the baby. She looks at this kid, falls in love with him. Right? Now that's an easy thing to do, right? How many of y'all, when you held, held your little baby in your hands the first time, both immediately fell in love and thought, I will do anything that it takes to protect this little kid. And that's what Pharaoh's daughter does. She immediately adopts him and gives him a name. She names him Moses because she took him out of the water. And she happens to see big sister 
standing there. She doesn't know it's the baby's big sister standing there. But big sister steps up and says, Hey, I see you found the baby. Would you like me to find a woman to nurse that baby for you? Well, as a matter of fact, I would. We need some way to feed this child. So, big sis runs off to mom and says, Hey, Pharaoh's daughter's adopted the kid, uh, but she needs a nurse. And uh, I told her I'd go find somebody to nurse the baby. So, the baby's own mother, Moses' mother, comes into Pharaoh's own house to nurse her own child who is adopted as Pharaoh's grandson. How about that? God is intervening right in this situation. But it takes a while for that deliverance to come about. When Moses is about 40 years old, having grown up in Pharaoh's own house, think about this, Pharaoh gave the order for all the the boy babies of Israel to be destroyed. One of them grows up in the palace as his grandson. But when he's about 40, he comes to fully understand not only his identity as a Hebrew, but the fact that God had called him to deliver his people. And so Moses thought to do it by his own power and ability. And that failed spectacularly. He kills one of the Egyptian taskmasters, but he he winds up having to run for his life and live in the desert of Midian, which is in present-day Saudi Arabia. And he spends the next 40 years there. 40 years there. And again, you might think that God wasn't particularly doing anything, but He was preparing Moses for the day when He would lead an entire nation of people into that same desert. Now think about this. How God has worked this out. God has not only protected the the Hebrew boys, but He's protected one particular Hebrew boy by putting him in Pharaoh's own palace. And as as the adopted grandson of the Pharaoh, what is he learning? He's learning how to lead. How to lead an army. How to lead a nation. How to rule well. How to govern. God is preparing. God puts him in the desert for 40 years and as it happens, he's going to have to lead that whole nation of people around this same desert for 40 years. So is Moses equipped to do this job? Yes, he is. Every part of it he's going to need to know how to do he has already done by the time that God calls him. So at this point in the story, Moses is 80 years old. Some of y'all are thinking, when I'm 80, I'm going to sit on my porch and sip lemonade. Right? I'm going to watch the, watch the cars pass. You know, I'm going to sip lemonade and just enjoy life. Moses' ministry in the nation of Israel hasn't started when he's 80 years old. God speaks to him from a burning bush. He sees off in the distance as he's watching over these sheep, he sees a bush that's burning with great fire. But as he stands and watches, he sees that the bush is not consumed. Now think about this. You're living in the desert. 
a brush fire is not something that's all that unusual. But I can tell you this, when I burn brush at my house, you know how a brush fire goes? It's like, and there's this big flame and inferno and then all of a sudden it's gone, right? Because that brush, just it doesn't last like logs in a fireplace. But Moses has seen fires before and he knows this bush should be going up like a match. But it's not. And as he gets near, a voice speaks to him from the bush and says, Moses, take off your sandals. The place where you stand is holy ground. You've come into the presence of God. Moses doesn't know who God even is. He has to ask His name. And God introduces Himself. He says, I am who I am. In other words, I am the God who exists. The God who has always existed. The only One that there is. And in comparison with me, everybody else that you might claim as a God should say, I was. Or I'm not. Because they don't exist in comparison to me. I am the only God that there is. And He sends him, uh, He says, I'm going to send you into Egypt, back to Egypt, back home to where you've grown up, and I'm going to send you to lead that mass of slaves out of captivity in Egypt. This would be like saying, by the way, that you're going to, that you're going to go into the dominant world power of the entire world. And you're going to take all of their captive people out from their possessions. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? This is the world empire of the ancient world at this time. The most powerful people in the, that exist on the planet are the Egyptians. And you're going to send me, this guy has been kicking around the desert the last 40 years with this stick? I'm an 80-year-old man. Moses initially argues with God and he says, you know, I don't speak well. I really don't know how to do this. This is really not my calling. This is not my thing. I, I, you know, I, and God says, no. And eventually he says, would you please send someone else? And God says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll send your buddy Aaron. He can be your spokesperson, but I'm still sending you. Now get moving. And off he goes to Egypt. This is where the story gets really dramatic. The Israelites at this point have been enslaved for 430 years. God sends Moses and Aaron to confront Pharaoh and share with him God's command let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. Moses and Aaron do miracles in Pharaoh's presence to try to convince him. But still he refuses. And that sets the pattern for what follows. A, con a contest between God and Pharaoh over the people of Israel. And this is how that goes. God repeats His command to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. God sends a plague. And each plague that he sends reveals the powerlessness of one of the so-called gods of Egypt against his power. Pharaoh reconsiders and says, hmm, maybe I will let the people go after all. But it, 
but you got to let you got to end this plague. And so God ends the plague. But as soon as the plague ends, Pharaoh goes right back to refusing to let the people of Israel lose from slavery. And so God sends another plague and the cycle repeats nine different times with the same results. And so due to Pharaoh's stubbornness, Egypt is judged. And they get first a plague that turns the Nile River into blood. And then a plague of frogs and then gnats and then flies and then a disease that kills the Egyptian livestock, and then boils on all of the Egyptians from the top of their head to the soles of their feet such that they can't even stand. Anybody ever had one boil? I've had a few. They hurt, right? How about your body is covered with them? Ouch. Right? This was in a day prior to antibiotics. You can't even like find a comfortable place to stand or to sit down. They're just miserable. Then there's hail that comes and destroys the Egyptian crops. Then there's locusts that come that eat whatever survived after the hail. And then total darkness, of course, across the whole land of Egypt for three days. And still, Pharaoh refuses to let Israel go. And so God says, I will send one more plague, and after this, Pharaoh will let Israel go. In this final plague, he says this, I will send forth the destroying angel to strike down the firstborn son in every house in Egypt. And he says, I will give my people, though, a way of escape. What they were to do was to take the firstborn male lamb and slaughter it at twilight on the same night that the plague would fall. They were to take some of the blood of the lamb, now think about this, and put it on this side of the door, and this side of the door, and at the top of the door. And God said that when I see the blood on your door, I will cause my angel to pass over you and no death will strike your house. And then they were to take that same lamb and roast it and eat it as a family so that they would see that the lamb's life had been given in their place so that they could all have life. Well, that night, the death angel passed over the houses of all of the Israelites, but struck down every firstborn son in Egypt, from the lowliest Egyptian slave girl all the way up to the house of Pharaoh himself. And in his grief, Pharaoh finally let the people of Israel go. And they left after 430 years to the very day, triumphant over their slave masters and freed from slavery and death by what? By the blood of the Lamb who gave His life for them. The story doesn't end there. After a couple days, Pharaoh thought about the fact that all of his slaves had departed and he decides to, to gather the army and go chase them down. So he has them pinned down in a corner with the Red Sea in front of them, probably the Gulf of Aqaba, uh, actually, but, 
but it's one of those little fingers of the Red Sea. Okay? Um, He's got mountains on both sides. His army is bearing down behind them. So in other words, they they got mountains here, mountains here, the ocean in front of me, and Pharaoh's army coming up behind. How are we going to get out of this situation? Well, you see it on your screen. God sends Moses out with his staff into the water, and the water splits. Like y'all ever walk through an aquarium where they have that tunnel? Right? They get like glass over the top of you, and you see the fish swim by. Right? I think that's what it would must have been like, except there's no tunnel above you. You're just seeing like, like there goes a shark swimming. <laughs> right? Ooh, look, there's a barracuda. I think this has been really cool, right? And God comes down behind them in a column of fire and separates the people of Israel from the people of Egypt all night long until all of them have crossed safely across the water. And then God's presence withdraws and the Egyptians think, there they are on the other side, let's go get them. So they all ride out into the the division between the water, at which point the Lord allows the water to sweep back over them and destroy the entire Egyptian army. This was so cataclysmic, by the way, between the plagues and the destruction army that Egypt did not rise again as a world power after this for hundreds of years. There's more I could tell you about the Exodus, in fact, including the fact that after this, God brought His people to Mount Sinai and gave them the law. Now, we'll talk about that part of the story next week. But for now, what you need to focus on from the book of Exodus is this, that God redeemed His people from slavery by the blood of a lamb. And He took them through the water into new life as free people. Hang on to that thought. It'll come up again later in your Bible and in your life. Okay? And this real historical event foreshadows what Jesus has done for us. More on that in a minute. Uh, For now, let's look at the rest of the story quickly of Israel's time in the wilderness. Okay? God went with them every day. And He gave them bread from heaven and water from a rock during their wilderness wandering. Now, you need to know this. A lot of people are like, did Moses like just get lost and refuse to ask for directions? Like, what was the deal? Why did they spend 40 years in the wilderness? Like, should he just have stopped and asked his wife where they were supposed to go? Like, what was the deal? You know, uh, no, that's not what happened. Um, it's an 11 day walk, an 11 day walk from Egypt to the edge of the promised land where they wound up. But first, they had to go to Sinai to receive the law, and they were there about a year. And then from there, it was just a short walk. A little little longer than a week. week and a half. From there, up to the edge of the promised land. But the reason why they spend 40 years is the subject of the whole book called Numbers. All 36 chapters is about this time. Um, Numbers begins with the whole nation journeying from Mount Sinai led by the visible presence of God. Now this is important. God's presence was with them 
In the daytime, they had this, this pillar of cloud because when you're in the desert, what do you want? Shade. And so God was with them, over them as a cloud, giving them shade in the desert. That's pretty awesome, right? And then at night, He was with them as a pillar of fire. Because again, at night, in the desert, what do you want? Heat and light. Right? And so God is with them, providing for their needs, and He is with them every day. And they were just, all they had to do to get to where they were going was follow the pillar. You could see it from anywhere in the camp. And just go, go the direction that the fire is. That's where we're going. Go the direction that the cloud leads. That's where we're going. And following the pillar, there were priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle components, which were set up wherever the nation made camp. And they set, and they finally make it to the edge of the promised land, and they send in twelve spies, one spy from each tribe. And then they spend forty days in the land, spying it out, and seeing the whole land from 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 north to south, east to west. They look through the whole thing. And then they come back and they give their report. Now, two of the spies report, this is a wonderful, amazing land full of milk and honey. You can't imagine the productivity of this place. God has promised to give it to us. We should definitely go and get it. But ten of the spies report back, well, yes, it is a good land full of abundant produce and crops and fruit trees and cities and villages, but it's also full of people that are hostile to us and they are taller and stronger than we are and all of our people and all of us and our children are all going to be devoured by these Canaanites. And we should not go in. And all these ten are focused on all the obstacles of going into the land of Canaan and taking the land that God has given them. But here's the thing that they forgot. Remember I told you Egypt was the most powerful nation on earth at the time of the Exodus? The land of Canaan was ruled by Egypt. So less than a year later, God had already delivered them from the people who ruled over these people. And yet, they're terrified that they are somehow not going to be able to handle this after God has already dealt with a much bigger issue. Right? But, even though it would seem that if God can save from Egypt, He can also save from the Canaanites, the majority report in this case is the one that Israel believes. And they refuse to trust God. And so God refuses to let them go into the land and experience His blessing. Essentially, God says this, okay, you don't want my blessing and you don't want my leadership to take you into the land? Fine. You will not get to have my blessing and you will not get to go into the land. And so they spend, because the spies spent 40 days wandering around, Throughout the land, they spent the next 40 years wandering in the desert. Until every single member of that older generation of people who came out in the Exodus died in the desert except for the two spies. 
who gave the good report. They got to go in. They got to see the blessing of God. But it, they had to wait for 40 years for everybody else to die. And the children that they were all afraid would be eaten by the inhabitants of the land, they are the ones who went in and received it from God. So the story of Numbers is what happens in between in that long 40 years of waiting for this new generation to arise and take the place of the old one. God did not abandon them through that whole time. But they, as they wandered, they experienced one painful test after another. And God is present with them every single day. In fact, they know He's present with them not only because they can see a visible manifestation of His presence, but also every single morning they walk out and on the ground there is bread for them to eat. The bread came down from heaven every single day, except for the Sabbath day. And the way God made provision for that is that He said, look, I'll send twice as much on the day before the Sabbath so you can go out and it'll keep for the Sabbath day. And you'll have provision. In addition to that, when they were in a desert place with no water, God gave them miraculous water from a rock that, got, that Moses struck, which produced enough water for the whole nation and all their livestock to be sustained and blessed. Now, there's obviously much more I could say. Um, after all, these two books, as I say, combine for 76 chapters of your Bible. But there are some; these are the most important things that you need to understand from these books because these are some of the most important concepts that directly show us how these things point to Jesus. Jesus saves us the same way He saved them. They got the foreshadowing. They got the picture in concrete terms of what we experience in spiritual terms of the reality of those things that they were anticipating and looking forward to and experiencing in ways that they could see. We experience the reality that those things pointed to. Jesus saves us the same way, giving us the real things, the true things, that Israel's history only foreshadowed. Now, if you look at your outline, I've listed a bunch of Scripture there. We're not going to look at every one of them, okay? I encourage you to sit down with your family or by yourself in your own quiet time and look up every single one. But I want you to understand this, that again, Jesus saves the same way He did the ancient people of Israel. The only difference is, is that they experienced the foreshadowing of these things and we receive the real thing in Christ. So let me walk you through the story of salvation, of your salvation with these things in mind. When you put your trust in Christ, God delivered you from slavery. Did you know that? One of the words that the Bible uses to talk about what Jesus did for us on the cross is the word redemption. The word redemption in your Bible has to do with the buying of a slave and setting them free. And the Bible constantly talks about your salvation in terms of your redemption, that you have been bought by Jesus, by His death on the cross and by His resurrection, and you've been given new life. How did God save you? Same way He did them. 
by the blood of the Lamb of God who died in your place. His blood covers you so that death, see if this sounds familiar, passes over you and you are saved. You know, when you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you die that you don't really die, I mean, eventually your body quits working. But here's what happens in that moment. Okay? In the moment that your heart stops beating and your brain ceases all of its uh, neural activity, you open your eyes again in the presence of the one who gave his life for you. Do you really die? Well, I suppose in a certain sense, yes. But in the real sense, death passes over you. You don't experience death in the same way as an unbeliever in any way. They go into God's judgment. That's real death. All you experience is the cessation of this physical existence and then you're in God's presence in that same moment. Death passes over you. In addition to that, His death gives you life and sets you free from slavery to sin and from its penalty of death and from serving Satan who is a far crueler taskmaster than Pharaoh ever thought of. Let me just tell you something. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are probably living a life that you have thought, this is all going to work out. I'm going to do this thing over here and it's going to make me feel good, and I'm going, to, I'm going to enjoy it, and it's going to be great. And then what happens is, at some point further on down the road, the party stops, and you feel absolutely hopeless and oppressed and enslaved to that thing you gave yourself to. And it's miserable. And it's a form of slavery. And anyone who sins, the Bible says, is a slave to their sin. And they are enslaved by, it, by, by being entrapped by it. They are enslaved to its consequence of death. And they are serving what willingly and, and wittingly or not. They're serving Satan. But here's the reality. When you are saved by the blood of the Lamb of God, you are set free from sin, and you do not have to submit to it anymore. More than that, uh, just as the people of Israel pass through the waters of the Red Sea, you as a believer in Jesus Christ pass through the water of baptism. Not in order to be saved, because remember, the people of Israel had already been saved. They had already left Egypt. Right? But, as a symbol of what has already happened to remind you that you have left your old life behind for good and entered into a new life in the presence of God. As part of that new life, you're looking forward to the day when you enter the true promised land in heaven. The land of Israel is, is beautiful. And I enjoyed being there. The time I was there, we ate like kings. We saw an amazing amount of stuff. We walked in places that Jesus had walked. It was incredible, right? But I'll tell you this, it ain't heaven. In fact, it doesn't even bear much resemblance to heaven. Heaven is the true promised 
land. And between the day that you go there and this day, you're going to experience many trials, just like Israel did. You're going to have to learn to trust God in hard circumstances, just like Israel did. But you know what promise you have? That God will go with you just like He did with them. And more than that, and even better than that, God will not lead you with a pillar of cloud or with fire, but with the Holy Spirit who lives within you. After all, do you remember what happened on the day of Pentecost? As the Holy Spirit descended on everybody, what did they have over their head? Column of fire. That's what. Why? Because of this. Because the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, now dwells not in a building or a tent, but in you and in me. God's presence goes with you and He leads you. We've also received the Word of God just like they did. It gives us instruction on living a new life. But not only do we have the complete written Word, but we have the living Word who became incarnate among us, who gave us the Spirit to give us new hearts capable of actually obeying the instruction we were given. We, they were nourished by physical bread from heaven, but as Jesus told us in John 6, He is the true bread that came down from heaven. And our lives are nourished by His presence with us in a way far better than Israel was fed by the manna that fell. Jesus is the source of living water. He is the true rock that gives living water of new life to all who put their trust in the One who was struck for their salvation, just as Jesus said in John 7 and Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4. We also receive comfort from God through Jesus Christ who told us in Matthew 28.20 that He would be with us every single day until He comes again. And one day, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.13-14, we will leave this earthly tent behind and we will enter into our permanent home. Where according to Revelation 21 and 22, we will eat fruit from the tree of life, a tree we didn't plant, and live in houses that we did not build and receive the reward of those who have overcome by the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb. Amen? God saves you the same way He saved them, except so much better. We get the real thing. They only had the shadow. Let me pray for us. And then let's take communion together now with an understanding of what it means that God has passed over us by the blood of the Lamb. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank You that You give us these signs and stories and pictures and things in the Old Testament that point us to the reality that we enjoy in Christ. And Father, I pray that we would enjoy savoring what Christ has done for us at the cross and in His resurrection and anticipate His coming again for us as we celebrate the table and the ceremony that Jesus Himself gave us and gave new meaning to, new understanding of this Old Testament idea. Father, we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could have those who are going to help us serve communion, come on, come on down.
as they're making their way, I want to read you a little bit from the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul gives instruction about communion. This is what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Now this, this ceremony, communion that we celebrate, uh, takes place as Jesus is celebrating Passover with His disciples. That's entirely intentional. That is not a coincidence. Because Jesus is indicating that He is the true fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. That He is the one by whose blood people are saved. He is the one that enables the death angel to pass over you and pass over me that we might enter into God's presence and we might enjoy the true promised land that He has given to us. And that's coming. Right? And so what we're doing with communion is we're looking back on what Jesus has done and we're also looking forward to what Jesus is yet going to do when He comes and He leads us in to His presence forever and ever and ever again. And so, as, we, as we're taking communion, we're looking back on Jesus' sacrifice, first of all. His body was broken. And His body was broken with a purpose that He would experience every kind of suffering that we experience. That He might redeem us one day in our not just our souls, but our bodies too from all of that suffering and make us new again. In the breaking of Jesus' body is the promise of the healing of yours and mine. This body that you have will one day fail. In fact, it's in the process of failing from age 27 until you die. On that sobering note, understand this, that you're going to trade this body in on a better one. One which does not age. One which does not fade away. One in which your hair does not turn gray or loose. One in which you will live forever in God's presence. But in order for that to happen, Jesus' body has to be broken for yours. And so as, we, as we're celebrating communion, part of what we're celebrating is not just the fact that Jesus died in my place, but the fact that because He died in my place, I get new life. New life in every part of me, body and soul. Amen? So as we, as we take the bread, uh, take, take it with that encouragement. But also I just want to say that while everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is welcome to participate in communion, it is our custom here to wait till everyone has been served that is going to participate that we might celebrate together. So if you'd stand, please.
This is His body, which is broken for us. Take and eat in remembrance of Him. Father, we thank You that Jesus is the bread of life. The true bread that came down from heaven. And that is, as His body was broken, so our bodies will one day be healed. And we rejoice in that, Father. We look forward to that. And we praise You for the fact that whatever may happen to us here in this life, that You will one day redeem and restore all things. And everything sad will come untrue. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul continues in the same chapter, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, with these words, in the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. Again, it's our custom to wait till all have been served. And we can celebrate together.
Jesus said that His blood made a new covenant. That's important promise from Him. Because if you read your Bible and read your Old Testament, you, you'll know, and we'll talk about this next week, there's all kinds of sacrifices that have to be made. All kinds of blood spilled of all kinds of goats or pigeons or bulls or lambs. Over and over and over. Every day, every week, every season, every year. Lots and lots of sacrificial animals. And the reason for that was because under the law, you had to offer sacrifice. You had to have a substitute who, who gave its life for your sin. Because even though you had the law and you were told what you needed to do to obey God, you couldn't actually live up to it. So Jesus said, look, you remember that promise that was given to the prophet Jeremiah about a new covenant? I'm it. And there's going to be a final sacrifice made that's going to deal with all people's sin and will bring the Spirit of God into people's hearts and lives to enable them to do what the Old Covenant couldn't do, which was create new people and make them able to obey what God had commanded. He says, this is the New Covenant in My blood. In other words, when My blood is shed, you won't need to shed anymore. Because Jesus is the High Priest of a better covenant, offering better sacrifices. Brings us into a better relationship with God. And He is coming again because Jesus' sacrifice is unique in that He uh, is resurrected after the sacrifice is made. And He is returning to claim you and I one day. So Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, and I love these last three words, until He comes. Jesus is coming back. He's not dead. He's alive. And He's returning for you and I. So until He comes, to Christ. God our Father, we rejoice in the salvation that we possess through the One who gives better redemption, better sacrifices, a better relationship with You into a better promised land a better washing with water, a better deliverance from slavery, and one who takes us into the better land where You Yourself dwell with us and make us new, and where there are no enemies to trouble us anymore. And Father, we rejoice in the day that we see coming when Christ will return for those who belong to Him. And we pray it will be soon. But however long it is, Father, we pray that we would be faithful in the meantime. That we would walk by Your Holy Spirit in faithfulness and obedience to You, proclaiming the Word that You have given us of the Savior who came and died and rose, that all people who believe in Him might have new life. And Father, we pray we'd be faithful in that this week. In Jesus' name, Amen.